Welcome to His Word Heals. Today's program is part three of our four-part series of Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran Calendar, and the Samaritans. To listen to the entire message, go to our blog page at hiswordheals.com. Part three begins with some excerpts from a 12-hour lecture by Gary A. Rensberg, a professor of biblical studies, Hebrew language, and ancient Judaism at Rutgers University. This lecture concerns the dialect of Hebrew used in the Dead Sea Scrolls, what scholars call Qumran Hebrew, an important subject as we shall see. Qumran Hebrew includes grammatical forms unlike those found in any other variety of ancient Hebrew. They are absent from earlier Biblical Hebrew, from the roughly contemporary sources, such as the Book of Ben Sirah, and from the later Mishnaic Hebrew, the language of the Mishnah and other rabbinic texts. What is the origin of these forms? While much debate about Qumran Hebrew, Hebrew swirls in scholarly circles, we will follow the approach which understands this dialect as an anti-language. This term refers to the sociolinguistic phenomenon of a specific sect or group using in language in order to distinguish its dialect from that of the out group, that is, the majority population. We will realize the extent to which the Qumran sectarians attempted to distinguish themselves from the general Jewish population, which no doubt used a more standard Hebrew. That is to say, not only was their legal practice and belief system different, even their Hebrew dialect was different. The specific Hebrew dialect used to write the majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls is a different Hebrew register than all other Hebrew varieties known to us. Let me review for you here our other sources of ancient Hebrew. We begin with Biblical Hebrew, the language of the books of the Bible, divided into two strata. First, standard Biblical Hebrew, used down to the time of the exile, that is from about 1000 BCE until the 6th century BCE. And standard biblical Hebrew is used to compose the Torah, the historical books such as Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, books of the prophets such as Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah, and more. The second stratum we call late biblical Hebrew, used from the time of the exile in the 6th century BCE, let's say 550 to give it a rough date, down to the end of the biblical period, and then slightly into the post-biblical period, around 200 BCE. Late biblical Hebrew is used to compose books such as Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Chronicles, and others. Moving further chronologically, towards the present, we then come to some letters written by Simeon Bar Kokhba and his contemporaries in the years 132 to 135 CE, also discovered in caves near the Dead Sea, though further south in the Ein Gedi region. These Bar Kokhba letters are written in a Hebrew with some similarities to the language of the Mishnah, which brings us to the next category of texts for the history of the Hebrew language. The very large rabbinic corpus, especially the Mishnah and the related companion volume, the Tosefta, both from approximately 200 of the Common Era, these works are written in a dialect called Mishnaic Hebrew, after the main rabbinic work, the Mishnah, and this dialect diverges 
considerably from the old biblical Hebrew standard. Most likely this dialect, Mishnaic Hebrew, grew out of the everyday spoken colloquial Hebrew as opposed to the literary register used to compose the biblical books. The Qumran community refers to its opponents as using what to their mind was an inferior brand of Hebrew. The following phrases appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls to refer to their opponents or their manner of Hebrew. Lashon Aheret, another tongue. Arul Safa, uncircumcised of lip. Loeg Safa, disparaging lip. Those three occur in the Thanksgiving hymns document. And then a fourth phrase, Lashon Gidufim, tongue of scorners, that occurs in both the Serah Hayachad, 1QS, the community rule, and in the Damascus document. But the Qumran community could not use simple biblical Hebrew either, either the standard biblical Hebrew of earlier times or the late biblical Hebrew of, later, later of the later biblical period, for this variety of Hebrew was the inheritance of all Jews. The Qumran community, the Yahad, thus devised their own variety of Hebrew with its own vocabulary and its own grammar. Linguists refer to this phenomenon as linguistic ideology, and they use the expression anti-language to refer to the idiom developed by the in-group. One can find examples of this phenomenon in various places, in urban settings especially. Take, for example, Cockney English. Indeed, all sorts of coded language exist in the world of criminals, in the realm of prostitutes, and in drug culture, as scholars of sociolinguistics have noticed. Most striking is the phenomenon noticed by those who study modern-day cults. That is, they too tend to construct an in-group language. This point, this point was emphasized in the research of Margaret Singer. This is not to say that the Qumran community is akin to a modern-day cult, but the analogy that I'm presenting here for you may be helpful. My friend and colleague, William Schneiderwin of UCLA, adopted the term linguistic ideology or anti-language. He took this approach and he applied it to Qumran Hebrew. And I, for one, fully subscribe to his considerations here about this variety of Hebrew, which we call Qumran Hebrew or the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let me give you some examples of anti-language within Qumran Hebrew. Then, the Dead Sea Scrolls use a whole array of archaisms to give a patina of antiquity and thus authority to their literature. First example, Biblical Hebrew has two forms for his father. There is an archaic form, pronounced avihu, used only seven times in the Bible, and then the standard form, aviv, used 217 times in the Bible. Amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, however, the scribes clearly favor the first of these. They use avihu 24 times, while the word aviv is used only three times. A second example. Biblical Hebrew has an archaic form, lamo, which means to them. It's used 57 times in the biblical corpus, but only in poetry, which naturally uses a more archaic idiom. That's a, a linguistic universal. Poetry is typically written in a more archaic style. 
Therefore, it's not surprising to see this archaic form, lamo, to them or for them, used only in poetry in the Bible. In Qumran Hebrew, however, this form becomes rather standard. It's used 22 times, mainly in prose texts, and thus it appears in the Damascus document, the community rule, the war scroll, the Pesher Havakuk, all texts which we have read during our course. A third example, the form El is a term for God in Biblical Hebrew, used mainly in poetry, again as an archaism. In Qumran Hebrew, it is used exceedingly commonly, almost beyond counting. For example, 11 times in the first column of the community rule, 7 times in the first column of the war scroll. Other Jews, by contrast, were using the longer form Elohim to refer to God. They did not use this shorter form El, which was being used by the Qumran scribes. A pseudo-archaism occurs in these documents when the adverbial suffix ah, this is known from Biblical Hebrew, is attached to a host of other adverbs, even when it does not belong there. Thus, for example, in Biblical Hebrew, there's a word sham, it means there, and then there's a word shama, with the ending ah, and it means whither, or to there. But since the latter form, shama, has an air of superior language, the Qumran scribes would use this latter form, shama, even when the former sham was called for according to the strict grammatical rules. Finally, there is the very strange Qumran Hebrew usage of adding ah to pronoun forms as well. We saw a few moments ago how they took this adverbial ah and put it where it didn't belong. They took the same ah and they added it to pronoun forms. Thus, for example, while all other forms of ancient Hebrew, in fact down to modern Hebrew, use the word who for the pronoun he and he for the pronoun she, in the Dead Sea Scrolls we encounter the forms, can you predict them already now that you get the trend here, hua and hia. Similar, similarly, while all other forms of Hebrew use atem for the second person masculine plural pronoun, that is you, masculine plural, in the Dead Sea Scrolls we encounter the form atema, again with the addition of the ah suffix. The feminine equivalent, by the way, is unattested in our Qumran corpus of texts. Note the additional ah, hua, hia, and atema, similar to the suffix ah that we mentioned for the form shama. All of this once more sounds very strange to the Hebrew ear. The Qumran sectarians developed their unique pronoun forms that would distinguish them very clearly. Thus, hua, hia, atema, along with other similar forms, and we see these throughout their documents. The use of anti-language by the Qumran group demonstrates to what extent the Yahad saw itself as different from the other Jewish groups of the time. They accentuated these differences even to the extent of linguistic usage. As I have said, this variety of, of Hebrew is unknown from anywhere else in ancient times. There is one feature, however, which I have mentioned that does occur elsewhere, namely the unusual second-person masculine plural pronoun atema, that is, you, masculine plural, along with the corresponding 
possessive form, kima, that is your masculine plural. These forms are attested not only at Qumran, but in Samaritan Hebrew as well. That is the dialect used by the Samaritans. You will recall that the Samaritans are an offshoot of Judaism who express their individuality in different ways, most prominently by rejecting Jerusalem and honoring Mount Gerizim, where they had their own temple, with their own altar, with their own priests, offering the sacrifices to the God of Israel. Could the Samaritans also have engaged in an anti-language usage in order to distinguish themselves from general Judaism? Is that how the pronoun usage in both Qumran Hebrew and Samaritan Hebrew is to be explained? Were both of these groups, the Yahad members and the Samaritans, seeking to differentiate themselves through the use of language? Some mornings I wake up and think that the answer to this question is yes. These two groups share this goal, using language as a mark of distinction vis-a-vis -vis other Jews of this time period. So here we saw that Qumran Hebrew had some similarities to Samaritan Hebrew, whereas it had no similarities to other forms of Hebrew at the time. Next, we'll listen to what Mr. Rensberg has to say about the calendar scroll, and then we're going to look at a scholarly publication that compares the Qumran writings, the Qumran scrolls, to the Samaritan writings. As we have noted already in our course, the Dead Sea Scrolls reveal that the Qumran community utilized a different calendar from other Jews at the time. While the standard calendar was a lunisolar one, that is, lunar months with necessary adjustments to the solar year, the Qumran sect utilized a strictly solar calendar. The latter calendar, the solar one, is also reflected in the post-biblical books of Enoch and Jubilees, both of which are well represented among the Qumran manuscripts, as we saw in the previous lecture. An alternative calendar based strictly on the solar cycle, however, developed in late antiquity. This system has 52 weeks, each of which is comprised of seven days. 52 times seven gives you a total of 364 days. Apparently, there were 12 months of 30 days each, not connected to the lunar cycle, for a total of 360 days, with an additional day added for each of the four seasons, bringing the total to 364 days. Now, with this system, since 364 is divisible by 7, this means that the holidays will always occur on the same day of the week each year. For example, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Torah tells us it occurs on the 10th day of the 7th month, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 27. If you use the system I'm describing now, the Day of Atonement will always occur on a Friday. And the first day of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, a seven or eight day festival also described in Leviticus chapter 23, which commences on the 15th day of the seventh month, this holiday of Sukkot will always occur on a Wednesday and so on. Most interestingly and quite logically, the Jewish New Year, according to the system, the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, occurs on a Wednesday. Why a Wednesday? 
because the sun and the moon, go back to Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, the sun and the moon were created on day 4, that is to say, a Wednesday. Of course, a 364-day system means that each calendar year falls one and one-fourth days short of the actual solar year, which we all know to be 365 and a quarter days. We have no idea how this, how this system compensated for this small difference of a day and a quarter. In any given two or three year span of time, this would have been only a very, very slight difference. Passover would still be falling in the springtime, commemorating the spring harvest of barley. Shavuot would still be in the early summer, commemorating the wheat and the first fruits. And Sukkot, the great fall harvest, would still be in the fall. But over the course of decades, over the course of much longer spans of time, that one and one quarter day difference would have amounted to a considerable difference with such passing of time. In addition, in this system, no leap day is possible. Since this would upset the entire system, where would Sabbath fall if you inserted an extra day? One would need an eight-day week at some point, presumably, obviously an impossibility, and all the holidays would be off. So you cannot insert a leap day. The solar calendar that I've been describing to you is reflected in the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilees, and as we learn from the sectarian documents among the Dead Sea Scrolls, this same calendar is used in Qumran as well. This will explain why many Dead Sea Scroll texts castigate the sect's opponents for celebrating the holidays on the wrong dates. A key passage, for example, is found in the Damascus document. Quote, they shall keep the Sabbath day according to its exact interpretation and the feasts and the day of fasting according to the finding of the members of the new covenant in the land of Damascus. That's from the Damascus document, column six. By the way, this devotion to the solar calendar may be related to a passage from Josephus that we read earlier when we explored the topic of daily life at Qumran. Let me read that passage for you again now. The passage from Josephus, it's from the Jewish War, Book 2. He writes, And as for their piety towards God, it is very extraordinary. For before sunrise they speak not a word about profane matters, but offer certain prayers which they have received from their forefathers as if they made a supplication for its rising, with the its referring to the sun. Do you remember when we read this earlier? I didn't make the comment then, but let's do it now. Look at the emphasis on the sun. They are making supplication, as it were, for the sun to rise. That ties in, in my estimation, to the whole concept of using a solar calendar. So we can see here that the solar calendar could have been connected with sun worship by the inhabitants of the Qumran community. Let's read an article about solar deities being found in early Jewish synagogues throughout Israel. The article that I'm reading is from the Jewish news site Haaretz, and it's called The Metamorphosis of the Sun God in Ancient Synagogues in Israel. What are the zodiac and other images doing in those bastions of monotheism? The answer lies in a Judaism we don't know anymore. 
At least seven synagogues in Israel built 1,500 to 1,700 years ago feature mosaics of the zodiac of all things. The zodiac symbols are in a circle surrounding what appears to be the Greek sun god Helios. The circle is typically enclosed within a square with human figures representing the four seasons at its corners. Some of the mosaics also show the moon and stars. Apparently, later generations were appalled as today's rabbis would be if somebody drew pigs on the synagogue floor. In some cases, the depicted deity and personified seasons in the mosaics have been defaced. The synagogues in question are at Beit Alpha, Zippori, Hamat, Tiberias, Josepha, and Hukok in the north, and Susia and Naran in the west bank. The question is what these pagan images were doing there, positioned smack in the entrance to the houses of worship. Except at Zippori, you couldn't miss them. At the time, it was evidently considered permissible to use imagery of people, animals, and even pagan gods as long as it was in the service of Jewish tradition and adopted Jewish meanings, says Professor Moti Aviam, an archaeologist at Kinneret College and an expert on ancient religious structures. Skipping down, the article asks, how did imagery become acceptable in synagogues? The answer lies in the kind of Judaism practiced in these synagogues. It was not rabbinic Judaism, which would eventually become Judaism as we know it, but at the time was only taking shape on the sidelines of the Jewish world. The Jews who prayed in these and other synagogues belonged to what was then the mainstream of Judaism, but is now long forgotten, Hellenistic Judaism. Hellenistic Judaism began to take shape in Ptolemaic Egypt. 305 to 30 BCE and quickly spread throughout the eastern Mediterranean. Jewish soldiers stationed throughout the territories of the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires took this form of Judaism to far-flung regions such as Cyrene, now in Libya, Cyprus, Syria, and Asia Minor. There, these communities, which were initially very small, grew rapidly, perhaps becoming as large as half the urban population by the end of the first century current era. Skipping further down, as Roman religion was changing, so too was the religion of Judea. Following the destruction of the Second Temple Judaism in the disastrous anti-Roman revolts in the 60s and 130s CE, the dominant form of Judaism practiced in Judea at the time, a Judaism centered around the temple, disappeared. Hellenistic Judaism became the dominant form of Judaism in the Holy Land in the following centuries, as the Mosaic-adorned synagogues attest. These shuls and their mosaics only seem strange when compared to the later synagogues of Rabbinic Judaism, but they are perfectly in line with the Roman cults of the period. Indeed, Hellenistic Judaism is best understood as a Roman cult. The comparison of Hellenistic Judaism and Roman Mithraism is especially intriguing. Hundreds of Mithrae, caves or rooms designed to look like caves in which Roman adherents of the cult practiced Mithraism's mysteries have been discovered. These bear some resemblance to the Hellenistic synagogues. Interesting to note that this Hellenistic Judaistic Mithraism was practiced in caves. Continuing on. Among the relevant similarities are the portrayal of Mithra as a solar deity on a horse-drawn chariot and astral imagery including the signs of the zodiac. 
So in this respect, the existence of the Zodiac and the portrayal of the Jewish God as a solar deity in synagogues was in line with the general thrust of Roman religion during the period. Hellenistic Judaism was very different from the Rabbinic Judaism that would later supplant it. Prayer and reading of scripture was in Greek, not Hebrew. The practices and beliefs were also very different if we take the writing of the first century philosopher Philo as representative. Though lacking any central leadership, the rituals probably varied quite a bit from community to community. Also, a synagogue was headed not by a rabbi, but by an archisynagogos, head of the synagogue, and a council of elders, presbyteroi. This form of Judaism is alien to us because it did not last. After flowering in the 4th and 5th centuries, as attested by the synagogues built in this period, Hellenistic Judaism collapsed and disappeared, together with the Roman society in which it existed. Hellenistic Judaism disappeared for many reasons. We're all out of time, but you can listen to the entire message at www.hiswordheals.com and go to our blog page. No longer bound by fear, his kingdom's drawing near, this is our time to arrive.